Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm He Yang. We're in the thick of the 28th UN Climate Change Conference, or COP28, which is already in full swing in Dubai. World leaders are converging in the UAE, fueled by a collective mission to tackle climate change head-on. We'll explore what ambitious climate actions might be on the horizon with expert opinions from Derek Ellsworth, professor of energy and geo-environmental engineering at Pennsylvania State University adding depth and clarity to the discussion. The world is watching, and so are we. And we share with you what's made us happy in Roundtable's happy place. For today's program, I'm joined by Lee Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show. World leaders are gathered in the United Arab Emirates to work together to curb climate change. The 28th UN Climate Change Conference, or COP28, has kicked off on November the 30th in Dubai. Here's the kicker, though. Researchers are waving a caution flag, suggesting that we're crawling rather than sprinting forward our climate goals from the Paris Agreement. As a result, the world is holding its breath on bolder climate actions at COP28. So give us a refresher on what COP stands for and why it matters, Li Yi. Yeah, I think well, usually when we talk about COP, it's basically referring to the Conference of the Parties, to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's actually an annual international climate summit, and if we're going to put it in a very simple way, at COPs, world leaders, they just gather to work together on solutions to tackle climate change. And currently, there are about 198 parties, including the European Union, to the convention, and that constitute almost a complete membership of every country in the world. And every country actually enjoys the same voting right. And the first COP was held in 1995, and this year, the 28th COP meeting is ongoing in UAE in Dubai, and it lasts from November 30th to December 12th uh, as leaders from governments, businesses, and, uh, and also civil societies just to meet to see concrete solutions to climate change. Mm-hmm. Yes, and what are some of the landmark COP commitments worth our attention, Josh? Well, there's certainly a few. Um, some of them I can tell you about are, for example, the Kyoto Protocol, which was the COP3 the, in Kyoto in 1997. It committed, and I quote, industrialized nations and economies in transition to limit and reduce greenhouse gas emissions in accordance with agreed individual targets. 192 countries are part of the Kyoto Protocol, but it only set legally binding emission targets for 37 industrialized countries and the EU. It ran until 2020 and has been replaced by the Paris Agreement. And that brings us to another really important landmark, which was um, the Paris Agreement, which was at COP21 in Paris in 2015. The Paris Agreement is a legally binding international treaty in which countries committed to limiting global heating to well below two degrees, and ideally 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels. There is one more, um, the more recent one, the Glasgow Climate Pact at COP26 in Glasgow in 2021. The Glasgow Climate Pact saw nations agree to reduce the gap between current emission reduction plans 
and the action needed to limit heating to 1.5 degrees. It was also the first time a COP agreement included commitments to phase down coal power and fossil fuel subsidies. Yes, indeed. And now all eyes are on COP28, which is very important, as it's all about implementing the agreements that uh, Joshi mentioned just now, especially, you know, the Paris and the Glasgow. And also when COP was uh, held here in China, it's garnered more domestic attention as well. So ramping up ambition and action is what we are watching for here. So what are some of the biggest priorities? Priorities of COP28. We know that the uh, figure, or more like the uh, 1.5 degree limit, is sort of a benchmark that everybody's talking about. So, walk us through some of the priorities this year. Yeah, I think, as you said, we're now trying to achieve the path toward a 1.5 degrees goal because at COP26 in 2021, governments agreed to focus on this goal, on this pathway, rather than the less stringent two degrees goal. And uh, the thing is that since the Industrial Revolution, I think the average global surface temperature has risen by about 1.2 degrees Celsius. And most scientists agree that an increase of 1.5 degrees is the exact threshold. I mean, beyond this threshold, the effects of climate change would be the most dangerous and irreversible. So that's why all countries are really working to achieve this goal. And uh, as a result, keeping the 1.5 degrees Celsius within reach is a key agenda for COP28. And also, there's the first ever global stock take which will conclude at COP28. Josh, what is that about? Well, the global stock take is like taking inventory. So it's an assessment of progress made toward mitigating global warming since the Paris Agreement in 2015, which I mentioned earlier. And the stock take takes place every five years with the first ever stock take set to conclude and be discussed at COP28. So it started five years ago. Um, What's been found? Well, an early look at the findings from the global stock take indicates that the global community is not on track to achieve the goals set out in the Paris Agreement. Emissions are rising too fast to meet the 1.5 degree by 2030 target. Um, They would have to peak within the next two years, but they are still climbing. And uh, that reaching net zero by 2050 would require absolute economy Um, absolute economy-wide emission reduction targets at a cost of trillions of dollars. Mm. Wow, that sounds like a lot of money, but certainly I think money and uh, the resource discussion is essential when it comes to this uh, debate about how to go about cutting greenhouse gas emissions as such in the future. So ahead of COP28, China and the U.S. issued a joint statement on enhancing climate cooperation. What key highlights do we see as crucial and how can China and the U.S. collaborate to address the global climate crisis? We asked Derek Ellsworth, professor of energy and geo-environmental engineering at Pennsylvania State University, right before the show to hear some of his thoughts. And notably, he has recently been selected as a foreign academician by the Chinese Academy of Engineering, an accolade that stands as the highest academic title in China. So 
Let's hear what he has to say. Seems to me that both countries are desperately seeking areas for uh, cooperation rather than uh, competition these days. And uh, the carbon issue and climate change may, and carbon management may well be a non-threatening one in which they can both participate in. And it seems from the uh, accord that kind of uh, the announcement that came out of that meeting, that, that indeed is going to be the case. Uh, they talked about reducing and monitoring other non-greenhouse gases like um, methane. Uh, they talked about general cooperation in terms of things like the energy transition, which I can imagine would include things like uh, carbon sequestration, uh, hydrogen energy, geothermal, hydrogen storage, for instance, a whole variety of technologies that would enable this uh, transition to occur. Yes, and uh, it's important that these two nations talk to each other in this area that particularly requires a lot of cooperation. And also we can see cooperation actually panning out. So that's good. The two nations are speaking to each other in that regard. And what are some of the key areas of COP28's action agenda? Well, I think energy transition is definitely high on the agenda of this year's climate summit because as previous research suggesting, we are already making very slow progress toward the goal of uh, controlling uh, the temperature increase uh, within 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that's why this year government leaders and also organization leaders, company leaders, they are discussing about this very important issue. And also among all specific issues, uh, carbon capture technology also sit high on the agenda at a COP28. Uh, actually, to achieve um, that 1.5 degree goal, of course, uh, reduce carbon emission is very important. And also to achieve net zero transition is equally important. So basically, scientists and researchers think that carbon capture and storage is a critical technology in the process of achieving carbon neutrality. That can be a quite new conception for a lot of people. And for those who are not really familiar with carbon capture, basically is to trap carbon dioxide. And usually the process happens at power plants that burn fossil fuels mm -hmm. or at uh, factories. And uh, the goal is that um, the carbon or the CO2 can no longer contribute to global warming. And according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, catching carbon at a modern conventional power plant could really reduce emissions into the atmosphere by about 80 to 90% compared to a plant that doesn't have the technology to catch carbon. So it is a very advanced and also key technology that has already been applied and used in uh, some countries around the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, and one would wonder, is this technology safe? And do we have the technology to uh, maybe limit the cost a little bit because we all know with a lot of these avant-garde cutting-edge new technology scalability is always the biggest obstacle so we asked Derek Ellsworth professor of energy and geo-environmental engineering at Pennsylvania State University this question the technology is there largely uh, certainly we know how to remove uh, co2 from different gas streams uh, it's not inexpensive, so cost is an issue. We certainly know how to store things underground in the same way that we're removing hydrocarbons from the subsurface from oil and gas reservoirs. Uh, 
And then these are the same target reservoirs that would be refilled by the gas. And so we know a fair bit about how to get them in place and to make sure they stay in place and to maybe make sure that we don't cause earthquakes while we're doing this, which would allow them to escape. And so I'd say that the technology is largely there. We know how to do it, uh, but it's a very big ask just because of the size of the endeavor. If you think about it, you really have to sequester about the same amount of fluids, which is on the same size as the current fossil fuel removal system that we have right now. And you have to do that at some reasonable cost. And of course, it is a, an added cost to the production that you have to accommodate. And so I think it's not so much science or technology limited, it's cost limited. And so you need technological advancements to be able to lower the cost to make it viable. Yes, indeed. It sounds like the answer to technological difficulties is another technological breakthrough that we're anticipating. But that's not enough at this moment. So um, perhaps this is good news, though. Um, we've seen there are plenty of examples of various scales which have utilized the carbon capture technology already. So Professor Derek Ellsworth gives us some more examples here. Right now, uh, carbon capture and storage. Carbon storage is a technology which works. Uh, there are a number of places around the world where there are projects that uh, recover hydrocarbons, that uh, oil or natural gas that originally have some CO2 in it. And the requirements for that recovery of the hydrocarbon is that the CO2 is separated and then instead of just being dispersed in the atmosphere, it's re-injected. So Slipner offshore of Norway is one project. Um, there's the Insala project in Algeria, which is uh, in Northern Africa, which is another project. Uh, and the Gorgon field, which is a, a natural gas field off the northwest coast of Australia, where they're also doing the same thing and then sequestering the carbon. The amounts of carbon, of course, the carbon is uh, viable as a product to be sequestered because you're making money, of course, from the hydrocarbon stream that you're removing. So there's a net profit from that, which uh, makes it viable and economically worthwhile to sequester the carbon. Uh, but those are very small projects. They're something of the order of maybe a million tons a year. And the size of the kind of global carbon thing is something like uh, 30 billion tons a year. So something like 30,000 times larger than that. And so the technology exists, it's used, but uh, scaling up and doing it inexpensively uh, at scale is the, the real challenge, I think. Yes, indeed. That sounds like the biggest challenge here. Josh, what are your thoughts after listening to Professor Derek Ellsworth's reflections on these issues? Well, it does sound particularly challenging. And I think that a lot of these goals certainly are challenging. And I think that it, it, it appears to me that the, the biggest challenge to all of this is collaboration, because ultimately, when we're talking about these issues, we're talking about collaboration between a lot of different countries. And that is so necessary to deal with environmental issues such as this, right? So it seems to me that um, it's possible to do all of these things. Um, and as complicated as something like carbon capture may be, um, it's something that I'm definitely not an expert on. And I'm, I'm really grateful to hear about this and receive professional knowledge about it. But as complicated as it is, it sounds doable to me. And um, it still sounds as though the biggest issue, as I said, is um, collaboration. Well, 
Global negotiations like this are crucial if we're going to limit greenhouse gas emissions. But holding this conference each year requires thousands of people to fly to one location, creating more emissions, especially this year. Like, you know, it's only by air can people travel to Dubai. And this year, that location is a country whose economy depends on exporting climate warming fossil fuels. The UAE and also it's led by um, a personnel which is the CEO of the Abu Dhabi state-owned oil producer. I mean, one might just uh, look at this year's events with more of a, a watchful eye. But anyway, I think this year, COP28, it is actually at the center of global attention due to many reasons. And what you mentioned could be part of it. But I think a more pressing issue is that we are really faced with an urgency to Mm. address climate change because so far, you know, this year, 2023, is set to be the hottest year on record. And July, August, September, and October all surpassing monthly records. Mm. And this year we have witnessed like a lot of climate disasters happening across the world, like wildfires in Canada, Hawaii, and uh, also heavy rain has caused the flooding across many parts of the world as well, including China. So I think all of these have once again warned us of the urgency to really tackle, you know, to have some concrete and more practical action to fight against climate crisis. Because I also have the latest data, you know, from you, and they're saying that global greenhouse gas emissions need to fall by 45% by the end of this decade compared to 2010 levels ready to meet the goal of limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius to Mm. think about how much like how such a long way we still need to go through to meet that universal goal yeah um yeah i think also on top of that and i did already mention international collaboration and the importance of that and how of course cop 28 as before is going to bring together representatives from governments Um, civil society, the private sector as well, uh, all together for this really important dialogue. But I think that something fundamental to facilitating actual change and actual international collaboration that's going to result in um, tangible results is financial support as well. And I think that COP28, a big part of this is to mobilize financial resources Um, especially to support developing countries in their efforts to mitigate and adapt to climate change, because I think those countries obviously are going to find it more difficult given that they are developing in, in present, in present continuous tense. Right. So uh, I think that these kind, this kind of funding and these funds are definitely going to be crucial for the more vulnerable nations as well. Um, And I think that that's important to mention things like building necessary infrastructure um, and supporting communicate uh, communities that are most affected by the impact of climate change. Yes. And just like earlier on when we were talking about all kinds of technology that could be useful in cutting emissions, yes, it's by the sound of it, theoretically, a lot of the technology is there, but it's just how do you make it affordable mm-hmm. and available for a wider segment of the population? And that becomes a big problem. And when it comes to climate change these days, well, some people call it a climate crisis already. So this is a very urgent matter that is worth our attention for sure. And despite the challenges, despite 
various noises in the room, maybe even before when the delegates and representatives and important people arrive at the conference hall, one might wonder, is this still important? How significant is it to fly all those people over there to one spot on Mother Earth? And I think it is actually quite important because... A lot of stuff simply cannot be resolved over Zoom. And after watching some of the interviews of those uh, actual participants at the negotiations, apparently they say that a lot of the groundwork has been done in the corridors or before you sit down with your country's flag behind you because a lot of the important negotiations, talks, and feeling each other out and really getting to understand the issues on both sides or multiple sides has been done before that big meeting we see in front of camera. So it's useful to have folks gather together for in person for these negotiations. So enough about the world leaders and uh, leaders in respective industries. The regular folk has a role to play here as well. And Various surveys have shown that the younger generation is particularly aware and concerned about climate change. And how can young people contribute and influence climate policies? We've asked Professor Derek Ellsworth this question, so let's hear him out. Well, certainly uh, we teach at at Penn State a variety of programs in energy engineering and sustainable energy and traditional energy sources. And so there's no doubt that there's an interest in the students who come into those programs. They're very climate aware, if you like, and uh, are interested in their future. And so the mere fact that they're going into disciplines that will ultimately provide the labor force when uh, maybe more renewable and sustainable methods of producing energy come in place, that they will be the workforce that contribute to that. So they're very interested in that. So I think they're engaged in that. I think you see it in grassroots campaigns of uh, students uh, thinking globally and acting locally, planting trees and doing projects uh, in their locales to be able to uh, reduce um, fossil fuel usage. You see them biking to work. You see all these little things that uh, help in a small way, but certainly show their awareness and interest in these things. And, uh, yeah, you see these uh, these young people who are incredibly enthusiastic and motivated to do it. They know exactly what they want to do, uh, and they're focused very much on their uh, their trajectory that will get them into the the renewable energy sector and allow them to do something good uh, for society and for all of us in the future. For those of us who are still surviving at that stage in the future. Um, Josh, do you have something smart to say here? Well, I think that it's maybe important to have the discussion at some point about who bears the responsibility for all of this, which we've had we've had this discussion several times on the show, right? But I think that young people, whether they have the responsibility to or not, they certainly have the power to make massive change, if not the the most power or potential power for sure, right? And I think that one thing that sticks out to me, something that I found very interesting among a variety of factors is definitely social media. We've also talked on this show before about how social media, as negative as it can be, it's all, it can also push very healthy trends, right? Fitness trends and things like this. We've We've talked about on this show about how younger generations are drinking less and stuff like that. And I think that also climate, environmental awareness is also a big trending topic online. So I think there's a lot of power there. 
So exactly, I think that's why you see during this year's COP twenty eight, there's some like little change in terms of the setting of the delegates and also how they're arranging those meetings and sessions because uh, there is like a blue zone and a green zone. So basically, in the blue zone, uh, there will be all the official sessions, meetings, side events, and press conferences and.、Uh, Only party delegations, heads of state, and admitted observers, and also the accredited press can enter the blue zone. And then there's a very special green zone, which is aimed at like inviting a global community to join the discussion. And、uh, basically, it's a space for young delegates, for artists, for businesses, for regional and local decision makers, and also many other society actors to discuss present issues. And exchange their ideas and solutions. So I think it's really good to see that it's a very inclusive climate summit, and everyone is sharing and making their efforts, making their contribution to solve this global climate crisis.